This call is being recorded. All right, everyone, it's time for another edition of Holiday Chat 2018. This time we've got Paul from Michigan, who is, believe it or not, we didn't have many people in 2017, but Paul's a repeat caller. How you doing? How are you doing this year, Paul? Very good. Thank you, David. And how how did the year treat you in Michigan? Uh, it was a good year. It was a good year. Uh, we saw the economy starting to uh, pick up uh, and uh, businesses uh, had what I'm going to call more optimism, more energy and more willingness to try to do some things. Uh, not all was well. As, in fact, uh, if you look today, I guess on the news, uh, General Motors is announcing major layoffs and plant closings and et cetera. So you, you would uh, you you would think this would be a time of pessimism, but uh, I, I'm not really sure what's happening in the industry, but there's some dynamic uh, changes and that will certainly have a big effect on everybody here uh, going yeah. into the new year. This It's interesting that you say that about GM and you talk about optimism in business because this year, of course, there were uh, tariffs announced on certain products crossing the border. And in Michigan, you guys have a lot of supply chain interconnectedness with Ontario. Have you seen any fallout from the the tariffs or trade problems that, that came up? Or has that kind of been rectified with this uh, new trade agreement between, uh, between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico? No, it's been a major, major problem. And it is having a very significant effect on the trade between Canada uh, and the USA, particularly in the automotive supply chain. Uh, I uh, don't know exactly what the answer is, but I'll give you an illustration. Order releases from the automotive industry, uh, I'll use GM, but it's applying to all of them, Ford, Chrysler, the whole bit. They have been not releasing programs which then has the trickle-down effect of calling for tooling and engineering and design and development with a three-year vision of the people in the supply chain then needing to gear up to get engineering work done or get tooling work done or build dies, uh, build uh, assembly line uh, uh, layouts, Etc. And that came to almost a screeching halt this year. And the tariffs uh, are not uniformly blamed, but I think it's the unsuredness of what's happening with Canada, with Mexico, with China, and that whole tariff uh, situation. Uh, we have companies here that are uh, I'm talking to that are literally uh, maybe faced with closing down. Uh, they've got beautiful factories, everything's ready to go, but there's no orders being released. So it has been a significant uh, uh, effect, and I don't know really what's going to happen. The Christmas time is always a slow time, but we won't maybe see a real indicating light until after the first of the year, but it could be interesting for 2019. Well, you know, I think what, you, what you've identified is, uh, you know, the, the relationship between government and business is one of certainty. You know, if, if business people feel that the rules are in place and that they're not going to change, then they feel comfortable making their plans. And when, when things are a little bit uncertain or people don't know what might happen, um, it's really difficult to move forward. And 
And that is one of the biggest problems with people buying and selling businesses. Those buyers, just like those manufacturers, they need to know what's coming down the line in order to in order to move forward. Other otherwise, it it just feels too risky. I agree with you, and I think that's going to have a big uh, a big effect because even uh, in the small, let's call them, they're not in a big supply chain. Maybe they're a retail uh, operation. I, I, uh, they they uh, have an unsuredness that is coming from people not sure if they're going to have a job. So then they don't want to be buying the products that they would normally routinely buy for the holidays and the sorts. I mean, I find it entertaining that holiday sales seem to be quite quite robust right now, but uh, I, I'm not sure the people are that confident uh, Mm. underneath it or maybe they don't see out far enough maybe they're not seeing out as far as even the retailers well paul you work as a consultant with uh, with business owners and you also help to sell some businesses and last year you and i talked about a manufacturing business and i i don't remember all the details um and 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 not everyone listening will have heard that other recording so why don't we talk about that business and then maybe you can share with us what happened over the course of 2018 with those guys. I'd be happy to. Uh, it was, uh, right. It was just about a year ago. Uh, in fact, we, on the, on the holiday call, uh, I had just uh, received a request for a, uh, it's a small uh, manufacturing company. Maybe I guess you'd call it on the third tier, uh, both, uh, automotive and other businesses, uh, but it's stamping and, and uh, specialty metalworking uh, products. Um, uh, company was roughly an $800,000 revenue company at break even, been in the family for years. Uh, they had uh, actually been brought to my attention almost uh, a year and a half, two years earlier, and did not want to talk about uh, preparing it or having uh, a broker, uh, an agent consultant like me involved. They were going to try to do it themselves. Well, they attempted to do so for about 18 months, and uh, I got called uh, by uh, what was their financial people at that time and asked me if I'd take a look at it. Of course, uh, I told them I had, (laughs) and uh, and he said, well, now they really needed me to take a look at it. So I, I, uh, I made the proposition that they were, had that time uh, had a bad 18 months. And uh, now it was going to be a bit more difficult. But uh, I would take a look at it and I'd do the due diligence through the holiday season and see what we could do and tell them whether I could take the listing or not in January which I did subsequently, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, January of this year, 2018, uh, I listed it and uh, convinced the owner that the only way it would probably be able to be taken over by a buyer is if they were willing to do the financing. Uh, mm-hmm. They had done an appraisal. Uh, they had about, uh, I want to say, $400,000 worth of equipment. And uh, they had uh, about a month and a half for the receivables. So those were really the purchase. Uh, and then, of course, you know, some prepaids and things like that. 
And uh, so it was offered for sale with the uh, owner willing to finance. Um, and I went out and found uh, about a half a dozen people to look at it. And uh, one uh, buyer was, part of them were, they were unqualified. Uh, if, in fact, they they bought the business, the owner and I didn't think they had the wherewithal to make a go of it. So that wasn't going to be a good deal. They may have captured a down payment, but they'd be taking the business back based on competence in my best estimate. I right. Get- and, and, and just to point out to everyone listening, when, when a seller, you know, almost all sellers are have to finance some part of the transaction, but if you're asked to finance almost all, the, the seller really has to put that banker hat on and decide, is this a loan I want to underwrite? And that always comes down to the ability of the buyer or, or perceived expertise. Correct. So anyway, so we get into it and the, the movement uh, energy is going positive. Uh, but then the deeper I dig in the due diligence and uh, I'm uh, a, a kind of call it a broker consultant, but uh, I uh, want to make absolutely certain uh, that uh, even though I'm a transactional broker, uh, I feel a, a due diligence and a fiduciary responsibility to both the buyer and the seller that they don't get themselves into in a situation or argument. And mm-hmm. every seller that I've ever met thinks everything's better than it really is. And every buyer uh, has positive dreams of hope and maybe overlooks some realities in the market. And this business had both of those. Uh, the uh, the the business for owner that was selling it actually had loaned the business far more than they had realized they had loaned the business. When they started saying, oh, but they owe me for this and they owe me for that and the business. So uh, what turns out to be, if you may, oh, the business might owe me 50000 turns out to be the business owed them 150000 Okay. And uh, the receivables uh, that they had turned out to be pretty good uh, overall. I would say it was, I, I, I forgot the number, but maybe they thought their receivables were a hard 120, and they probably were about a hard 110. So they were good, right? And, uh, but uh, the, um, uh, the challenge was they then had some bank debt that uh, was individually owned and some bank debt that was corporate owned. And uh, that was a little bit higher than they thought it was. <laughs> mm. So I forget it was, uh, it was probably a hundred and they thought it was 30. Right. Okay. So now what looked like they were going to actually be able to get a down payment of 20%, let's say, uh, and of 80,000 and then carry back 320. Well, they weren't going to be able to do that because in order to get out of the bank, they were going to have to take, get more cash. Somebody's going to have to put it in in order to even make the transaction. The net net. Just, just to clear, just to clear the bank liens and things like this, you mean? Exactly. Cause the transaction either wouldn't have gone down or would have been complicated because now we're going to have to get uh, credit established by the new buyer mm-hmm. who who wasn't bad 
but was only willing to put in 80,000 period. <laughs> yeah. And that's all they really had. Okay. To, to put in. So, uh, and they had a lot of skill. They, they were technically capable. That was the right buyer. All right. In order to make this thing work. Uh, so to, to summarize that, uh, I was juggling on both sides. Well, then I get a call. And these are the things I, 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 this isn't very entertaining for a buyer and a seller because they obviously, as you well know, are trying to come together and get this done. But in every situation, stuff happens. And in this mm -hmm. one, sure enough, they have a weekend fire in the building. Oh, my goodness. And so now uh, everything that is supposed to be ready for closing in the first part of February is on fire. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and now you have a, a new third party at the negotiating table called the insurance company. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, fortunately, I'm I'm credentialed in that area. Also, I'm a property and casualty. <laughs> in addition to being a business broker, I have property casualty insurance license, and and so I went when I got the call. Uh, I at first time just took a deep breath and I said, "Well, this doesn't." bode well for my buy-sell contracting, right? But I asked them, I said, oh, who's your agent and whatever. The good news is it turns out to be one of the best agents, top reputation in the in the uh, area. And uh, further pursuit and then checking with other people in the business, uh, I didn't want to get into the role of being an insurance consultant, obviously. And right. advisor, but this uh, agent and advisor, being one of the best in the business, had well insured this company, uh, and the insurance company stepped in and was marvelous. Right. So they <laughs> and, they, they cleaned everything up and and got it back to the the, they, the pre. They not only got it back to restart, but they totally cleaned the entire building. They totally replaced everything for smoke damage. Uh, they cleaned the property up better than it ever had been, all right? Uh, there was uh, not only restoration, but there was equipment that was totally unreplaceable uh, or, or, excuse me, totally had to be replaced. And then I applied my engineering hat and went in and did some research on what are you doing for business processes and why do you need this equipment and how do you need that? And I was able to advise them to not replace certain equipment and take the take the funds flow from the insurance repayments and retire the debt. So they were able to buy the bank out, all right, and uh, get that clear. Uh, then, of course, we had to go back to the buyer and reduce the selling price because certain equipment was not there, which was only okay. – Fair, fair to do, but we had hard appraisals on it, and uh, so the buyer uh, was willing to do that because they could outsource those processes probably cheaper than doing it themselves anyway. So mm -hmm. I looked at it from an engineering consulting standpoint and said, you know, you're better off from a business to not have that equipment anyway. Mm -hmm. So the what out of comes something bad actually comes something good because they were able to to make what I determined as a third party. I look at it, I said, you have a better property now 
you have a better situation. Uh, you, the the equipment and every all the assets have been totally gone over for validation clarification to the standards of an insurance company. And as right. you well know, uh, in, insurance people are there to to make sure that full value is received. I, 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 I'm, of course, I'm an insurance salesman too. So, I mean, I believe in the product of insurance and I've, uh, I've never uh, really met an insurance company that doesn't go out of their way to really meet their contract and, and develop it. And this one did a fine job. So the deal end, uh, ended up going together and I got a third party attorney uh, to come in and look over all of the work that I'd done and all of the work the buyer held out for and all the work the seller worked out for and kind of served as a third-party arbitrator. And the whole thing went together with uh, probably about three feet of documentation mm. <laughs> for both sides, and uh, it worked out very well. Now, obviously, the the fire and the dealing with insurance added a, a hiccup into this, into the the whole transaction and doing the deal. What what did it end up being as far as a timeline from the day that buyer met the seller until it did ultimately close? Uh, let me see. I would say I'm trying to remember if we closed. On April, I want to say end of April, and uh, I introduced the buyer in uh, first part of January. Okay, so, so, so let's say January fifteenth to April fifteenth, something like that. Yeah, and and the insurance, the the fire happened, and then the insurance people were busy for what two or three weeks, probably. Oh, actually, right up. Uh, it was pretty much tied up by the time of closing. There were a few old issues, so they started their work February, all February and all March. They were pretty well done by the end of March. I suppose once the fire is put out and 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 the initial assessment is done of the damage, it, it, you can pretty much determine a, a, a timeline for for when things will be back to normal. Uh, Yes, it, it's a matter of uh, getting the restoration people in there and um, getting the equipment people uh, because all of this is specialty equipment. Of course, you have to get the vendors of those equipments to come in and assess whether it's repairable or uh, or needs to be replaced. And all of those issues, that was where most of the negotiation uh, happened. Um, but because of the way the insurance company had it, they had a pretty good, they had hard appraisals. We, they had recent hard appraisals. So that was pretty, uh, helpful to the insurance carrier. And, um, the, uh, uh, they, they, uh, funded it so that the company did not have to interrupt business except for you know, some cleanup areas and things like that. So they were able to to cut their shutdown time from maybe it was about two weeks and they paid them for that. But outside of that, they were able to get back to work. And and, and they were able to to get back on track with their customers. There were no big hiccups or issues uh, 
From yeah, the- just had a couple of customer delayed shipment situations, which, you know, they were, uh, they were not friendly to begin with, but reality struck everybody and, you know, they, they got it uh, settled. All right. And, uh, they came so back you, and they didn't lose any customers over it as it worked out. At least a, by the time of the closing it happened. I don't know what happened to subsequent, but I don't think there's any anything, any long-term effects from a customer standpoint. Okay. Well, I mean, it's an understandable thing, right? I mean, you can, right. you can appreciate when something like this happens. It's, it's, it's uh, something you can, uh, you know, I guess you can forgive for it if, if people can, can get back on track. It's, it's obviously something that nobody planned for. Have, have you kept in touch with the buyer and seller since the transaction? Do you know how well the buyer is making out? Uh, I have I've been in touch with the buyer and mm-hmm. uh, other. Uh, the The good news is the buyers uh, tells me that the sales have held up and grown, right? Mm-hmm. And the buyer is uh, a, a good salesperson and has. Uh, new customers that I think they're introducing. So that's good news. That tells me I, I haven't gone in and looked at their particular books uh, or done any assessment, but the sense I got, if the sales are growing, that he's retaining most of the existing business and adding these new customers. Because um, this, this business suffered from a lack of active, interested management, right? The, the ownership wasn't present, if I recall. Well, no, the, the ownership was, was present, but didn't have any sale, it, it, too much uh, desire, if you may, to grow the business just to hold sure. it. Okay. And, and so they weren't putting the kind of energy into the marketplace that needed to be done to build from there. They were just holding on and trying to keep cash flow going and keeping employees. And, you know, the, the new buyer, obviously, I think, I don't know that they've kept all the employees that there's obviously uh, uh, issues with some. And so I think he's made some changes in that area. Um, But I, but I don't have all of the details on that. But made the payment. So it's coming on a year. So made all of the payments and uh, uh, working down the, the loan. Um, there was a bit of negotiation in the interest being paid um, on on the loan. Mm-hmm. Interest rates had changed. Uh, it was originally offered at a, at a very attractive, but then of course when the disruption happened in those things, uh, the interest rate got negotiated up a little bit for the seller, which mm-hmm. was which was only fair because it was a it was a very attractive interest rate uh, and with things changing like they did, it was not unreasonable because the buyer could never get banking at the level that the um, seller uh, was able to sell it. And the seller has a fair, got a fair interest rate. You, you mean the, the buyer would never have been able to get an interest rate at, at a low rate? No, like not, not that kind of an interest rate. Right. And that, that was and originally that, offered. Yeah. And that's, and that's, pretty normal. I mean, the, the interest rates in these seller finance notes uh, are, are part of the overall negotiation, aren't they? I mean, the 
People yeah. say they want a higher or lower price. And sometimes one of the things that's traded for that is a higher or lower interest rate. Um, just to make, make uh, I don't know, a little bit of money shuffle from pile A to pile B, I guess. Yeah, that's that's correct. And uh, the um, if, if I could state the the value of a business broker or a business consultant, a third party transaction person that is knowledgeable in all of these types of things, it it would be uh, the buyer would want one thing, the seller want another. I had my own opinion. And mm -hmm. I would kind of evaluate both of them, both of the situation. And then I would try to guide them the right way. In addition to that, when I came up with a conclusion of whether it be an interest rate or what do you think the risk is on this or that and the other, I would write up a one pager and I'd send it to the attorney. <laughs> and I'd say, hey, <laughs> if as a third party, what do you think is right? Because I wanted to also confirm uh, my rationality and 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 what was thinking, and then he would he would test my assumptions. And sometimes he told me, "No, that this is this is too little, or this is too right, or that's unfair, or this is fair." And then he'd feed back to me, so I had somebody to check because I wanted a sounding board also, right, mm -hmm. of of fairness to everybody. And then I'd shoot it back to both of them. <laughs> I'd say, hey, look, this is what we think is the right answer. So I think uh, having uh, that kind of counsel uh, is valuable for these people, and they really need to get it. They need to ultimately have uh, some people on their side. You know, the work you do with, with the writing the books and getting them to do their pre-study and all of that, I mean, I can't emphasize that ultimately that work has to be done, right? Mm. It's expectations. Expectations is the word I use. And, and, and I, I tell, and I do seminars for buyers and for sellers. And, and when we talk about intermediaries and business brokers and, and consultants, I, I, know I always come back to the, the best intermediaries are the ones who are setting the expectations so that people can understand what is going to happen and what is reasonable and what has happened in a thousand other deals before they showed up. Um, because it's, it's the, the lack of reasonable expectations that creates so many of the problems, you know, the seller who expects to get all cash on closing, the, the buyer who expects to, you know, get a, a very good deal, you know, pay bottom dollar, this kind of thing. And when, when you're realistic with these people and you say like, this is how other deals for businesses like this have gone and here's why. You know, ban bankers are only willing to do this or or people are only willing to pay this amount because of the risk in this industry, et cetera, et cetera. When, when people are prepared, I, I find it's not such a, uh, an opportunity for someone to be taken aback when they finally see something on paper if they feel it doesn't match what they want. That's correct. And, and the, the, the more... Uh, educated they are on all of these possibilities 
no matter how clean it looks or how smooth it looks it's going to be or how good the books are or how how much they really think the receivables are the payables or the marketplace or all of that it never turns out that way <laughs> there's always an obstacle and that one obstacle could could be a real sticker if somebody gets anchored into some opinion and keeping the buyer and the seller unanchored in in irrational opinions, I think is the real art of, of the intermediary <laughs> is mm. help helping them don't be so anchored in what you think is true because what you think is true may not be, right? Yeah. And and in this situation, there none of these were insurmountable challenges, but they sure weren't what they were at the beginning of the discussion, right? <laughs> Everything changed from what equipment to what the market, to the situations, to customers being upset, to et cetera, et cetera. All of these changed the dynamic. And if either the buyer or the seller in this case had been totally anchored to some mm. predisposed opinion, the deal would have never gone down. Yeah. Well, can, can you tell us about some of those other buyers? Uh, you said you had about six people that you were able to find. Um, when the seller came to market with, with the upfront offer that they were going to be financing the transaction or a good part of it, um, did, is that what you think brought people out of the woodwork to come and take a look? Is that what allowed you to bring six people out? Because for a business that isn't making much money and is having issues to have six buyers is pretty good, I think. Yes, the, the the fact that it was going to be financed was probably the major factor because okay. the people that I was talking with that were immediately interested were either trying to acquire smaller companies and roll them up into a bigger company mm -hmm. uh, or they were trying to come out of a job that they no longer wanted to work and they wanted to be on their own, and they uh, uh, were able or wanting to look at any kind of small business that was in, you know, that purchase point area, half a million and under area, and mm -hmm. and so they thought they could quote unquote buy themselves a job that they could start building towards, and the fact that they could get financing and keep their cash, uh, which also kept their spouses happy in most cases. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, made it attractive. So I would say that that was the that was the big selling point. Low down in the ability to manage and cash flow. And as I mentioned earlier, my concern was I I wanted and I did evaluate the buyers as much as the sellers, mm -hmm. uh, because the buyers needed to have both the skill set and the knowledge. Yes. Uh, being in this industry, otherwise, it, it they might might stumble in two or three months, and they'd use up all that cash that was put in there by the by the seller. <laughs> so you said that a couple of the buyers, you and the seller, disqualified you. You felt that they weren't they weren't the right people. Yes. Uh, of the people who you thought could have been good candidates, did you were you in a situation where there were more than one offer floating around at the same time, or did you? Did you and the sellers select one buyer and try to make a deal with them? We selected one buyer. 
Okay. The uh, uh, and I had the secondary buyer uh, that I told, uh, you know, either act now if you're serious, and at that time they wasn't. Mm-hmm. Thirty days after it closed, that secondary buyer called me and said, "Is that business still available?" <laughs> mm. So they were just too late. Right? They didn't. They didn't move uh, on it, and and I was able to put it together with the first buyer that we so, had chosen. That was that was the one we really wanted anyway. So tell me about the about how the relationship was created between the buyer and the seller. So the you know, the buyer would have replied maybe to an advertisement that you would have put out. You would have spoken to them initially. And and then they ultimately, they would have met the seller at some point. Can you talk about like how many meetings might have happened or or the types and lengths of conversations that would have been had in order to get that seller to be comfortable with that candidate? Uh, yeah, the... Uh... Buyer had, let me see, I had, I put together uh, a, it's about a 30 page, very, very robust, detailed uh, package, right? Mm -hmm. And that's my seller's package. And it's much more detailed than you would normally see. It's, It's much more than an advertising. And it requires a uh, non-disclosure and and et cetera. And then I go through that with the buyer, all right? So the buyer knows quite a bit. And I get the buyer to give me a series of questions before I set up the appointment. I then meet with the seller and go over all those questions and tell them about the buyer. So that was a, a follow-up meeting, all right? Okay. And then the buyer or seller uh, agreed to meet with the buyer uh, off hours. Uh, I forget what it was. It was a weekend uh, evening or something. Uh, And so we could walk through the facility and the buyer could get a a sense of what was out there. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they saw the complete listing of everything on paper and the business uh, details, they wanted to feel it and touch it, all right, which, in fact, they did. Uh, that was just a cordial meeting, and then the buyer went back into their uh, uh, retreat, if you may, uh, and came up with a series of, well, I'm worried about this, worried about that issues. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, I prepped the seller on that and then held a secondary meeting to let the worry discussion happen. Okay. And then we had the fire. <laughs> 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 so then... The uh, oh, this is another little obstacle that came up. Uh, so then I said, Oh, uh, I, I had to kind of do the insurance work dance for a couple of weeks, and I assured the buyer during that time that don't worry, we'll work this out somehow. <laughs> let, me, let me get to the details. Well, at that time, I then I told him, Go get your uh, your down payment from your financial advisor, all right? 
which I'm glad I did that because, as you might appreciate, the financial advisor, of course, advised him not to do it. Right. <laughs> so during the time we were working on the fire, I was also working with the buyer trying to convince him that his financial advisor had absolutely no interest in having him take the money out of his financial advisor account and put it into a small business. Well, no, because that would hurt the advisor's pocketbook. Exactly. <laughs> so he gave me all, I said, tell me, give me all your financial advisor's issues. So I got all those issues and, of course, answered those. And it was like talking to a, a no-risk person versus an entrepreneur. Mm. And uh, no matter what I would, would have said, the financial advisor would have come up with it. You'd be better off earning one and a half percent in the bank. Right? Yeah. And so we went through that for a number of weeks. But anyway, got through the insurance and I was able to turn that situation then into uh, it was value, more valuable business, is, in my opinion. My engineering consulting opinion, it was actually better off without the equipment and some of the debt. <laughs> So, right, because because it's obvious that that equipment wasn't really generating returns beyond uh, what what normal business needs to earn on its capital. It wasn't being used enough or efficiently enough or what have you. That's exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And I, being able I, to pull, pull that out, and I got I, I did a better return on assets employed calculation, mm-hmm. and compared it before and after, and that's how I illustrated them. They would be they're better off. Since it's underutilized equipment, and in fact, there's no necessary big market for that product that they were making on there in the future, that it's a better situation for him to not have it. And he can outsource anytime he gets an order and just put a markup on it and move it through. So uh, the, 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 these are, are nuances that you probably typically don't get in a, I'm going to call a commercial real estate broker transaction. It no. takes, takes more consulting, more engineering, more knowledgeable uh, knowledgeable people about it. So I, I think that's another thing for your listeners probably is make certain the advisors that you have on there actually have a clue what they're advising on. <laughs> I, I see this problem all the time with a particular set of business owners is the people who have like the site prep or excavating businesses. And Mm -hmm. they'll have a lot of big, heavy equipment that they use all the time, but they just love to go to these auctions when similar companies are being liquidated. And if they get a really good deal on a, on a stone crusher, they'll buy it and use it twice a year (laughs) (laughs) and they'll tie up a bunch of money into it. And, and really they could, they could rent the, the same piece of equipment for very little compared to the money they have tied up in it. And, um, yeah, maybe it's a certain pride, or or maybe that boyhood, you know, playing in the sand with the with the with the machines. They like to see the big long line of machinery on their property. Um, but a lot of that stuff can go, and the and the profit and loss statement of the company really doesn't change, right? With a bunch of that stuff gone, so yeah, you get rid of it. <laughs> you know, I've seen that. Let's jump over into a, another couple of businesses that I've worked through the year beyond this one. And they went over in the retail area. And one of the things that I've seen, in particularly in retail businesses, uh, they 
unfortunately have way, way too much inventory. And yeah. they're they're trying to sell their business and they're believing all of this inventory is of value because they've had it for 35 years. Mm. And whether it's jewelry or, or uh, gee, uh, furnitures and fixtures that were wonderful 10 years ago. Uh, but now we're moving to an internet marketing world and we have an entire different situation. So they want to quote unquote unload unload, in my opinion, their inventory and their fixed asset that they've spent 25 years accumulating onto a new buyer who has absolutely no use for it. And yeah. if you were to take it to a bank, there's no bank that's going to give you any money for that equipment or that inventory. And so they're in a real pickle. And that goes back to these expectations you were talking about. And uh, I, I uh, in fact, one of the reasons I signed up for your call, let me just throw this inquiry out to you, was I started working with a couple of these people. I said, look, we've got to start either bartering off some of these assets or finding ways to coupon them out to customers during Christmas on two-for-one sales or do whatever is necessary to get your asset base down. Otherwise, this business will likely never be sellable. Yeah. Is that fair thinking? It is the 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 excess inventory is something I've had to deal with in uh, I'm going to say six or seven particular transactions, and it's it's been such a big problem that's required extra thought and extra preparation for the seller. And 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 for everyone listening, here's here's the problem, and I'm I'm going to use air quotes because this is a hallmark of success. These people have run profitable businesses and they've had money, extra money. And the, the, these inventories get accumulated because they get offered a good opportunity by some wholesaler or manufacturer, you know, buy, buy three times as much as you need and I'll give you a good deal. And they, and they take it because they, they feel they can turn the inventory at some point and they're going to end up making money. And what, I guess the way I positioned it with one person uh, this one time, he was a, a seller of uh, of uh, plumbing fixtures, bathtubs and and sinks and toilets and this kind of thing, is I, I said to him, you, you've managed to mix a plumbing retail business with uh, a plumbing inventory speculation concern. You've got two different businesses here. One where you're, and in his case, he was buying liquidations from retailers that were closing. And then he was speculating that he'd be able to sell them at full retail through his store. And some items were moving and other items weren't. And over the course of a decade or so, he accumulated this huge amount of inventory. And what we ultimately had to do at the end of the day is we had to identify truly what kind of inventory level was required for a new operator to run the retail showroom and we had to separate out the balance of the inventory and it was sold to the buyer on a special separate seller note that had a completely different set of terms. And so it meant that the buyer had access to that excess inventory, but he didn't have to pay for it until he liquidated it. So the seller sold the business and he ultimately was going to get paid for all that excess inventory but he had to maintain his speculative position in it. 
you know, basically waiting until they were able to liquidate it. And then there was this other case where, <coughs> excuse me, we had this, this family run business. And if you can imagine a little town with a general store a hundred years ago, okay. And pretty much everything sold in the town is going through this general store. And then highways are built and the telephone is brought in and everything modernizes. And this little general store eventually turns itself into a little grocery store, liquor store with, you know, work pants and, you know, uh, work boots and this weird mishmash of, of things that the local people are accustomed to buying. But the upstairs is, is packed to the rafters with everything they haven't been able to sell for the last hundred years. And in that case, what ended up happening is the buyer came along and saw all of this inventory and the seller had just reached the point where they were so tired of the business. They just said, look, you can have all this other stuff for, for just a few thousand dollars. And he basically liquidated all of that back inventory in that moment. But, but he knew that there was no value there unless somebody was willing to really create value. And what was particularly interesting about this one case is, is that buyer and his family, they started to go through things that probably no one had touched in decades. And they discovered treasures, Paul, um, dresses from 60, 70, 80 years ago. And they started to sell these things to the prop departments of playhouses and theater groups. Cool. Just an amazing treasure. But, but if the seller had wanted to count everything and inventory it and try to sell it at some kind of fair value, it would never have made sense for anyone to buy that business. Right. Well, and I think it's creating those scenarios that are a win-win mm. uh, that have to be done. And, uh, and, and I'm going to say keep envy out of it too, because if the seller in that illustration uh, wants to hold on to some perceived value that a creative buyer might be able to turn it and make a profit on it and be anchored to, gee, I, you owe me for that. Uh, mm. then the, that transaction's never going to happen. They, they're, they're just too greedy. On the other hand, that's what a buyer uh, gets in there for. A buyer's seeking an opportunity. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to take that chest over there with the big lock on it, because if I open the lock, maybe there's something good in it. And, yeah. and I want to go forward. And creating that energy uh, is helpful to both parties, and that's part of what, what putting the deal is. Yeah. Your, your comments about liquidating things, couponing things to, to get rid of some of this old inventory. Um, one of the things that can happen is if, is if somebody goes through a long liquidation like that, it can have an impact on the profit and loss statement because they're, they're getting rid of stuff. Maybe they've already written off. Um, the, the inventory may not be valued at all correctly with what it should be. The, the margins are going to be off and it can really start to skew the, the apparent performance of the business. And <clears throat> what I have told a couple of people is I've said, look, strip down this inventory to what you need to run this business and let's get everything else out of here and get rid of it in some other fashion. Send it to another town 
make a deal with someone who wants to sit at a flea market, you know, to split the proceeds of sale or something like this. Just get it out of here because if if the inventory is really not supporting the earnings of the business, then let's just move it someplace else and and try to get some money out of it or sell it to a liquidator even. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's good advice uh, be, because it it clarifies the business as it is today mm-hmm. and the business that then will be sold. And, and that goes for not only inventory, but goes for other any any idle equipment or idle assets or display cases or whatever it is that you think has value if it really doesn't belong in the business going forward. I I think cleanliness is much better. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I actually spoke with a young man a few weeks ago who had spent some time as a, a salesperson on the floor of a Staples location. And he was talking to me about how his particular store while he was there, the the decline in sales that occurred over over just a few years, that like seventy percent drop in sales, and and that store ended up being closed shortly after he left. He moved jobs, and and they didn't last much longer. And and we talk about retail and in the modern era, and Amazon, of course, is growing, and people are ordering directly from China. Um, I went to the shopping mall the other day, and I was there early before most of the stores were open. And the one thing that I remarked upon is that the place was filled with UPS and FedEx guys. And the stores, you know, at, at one time you'd go into a store, see something you liked, and if if the size you wanted wasn't there, you could ask the person, the clerk, and they would go in some in back somewhere and often come back out with the thing you wanted. And what I see increasingly is that that back stock room just doesn't exist or it's much, much leaner than, than it might have been. And with these computer inventory systems, people are literally selling things off the rack, articles of clothing in particular, because they're high margin, so they can afford the, the transport costs. People are selling them from the store, and then the day after, a new one is arriving, right? And that whole game is, is about these major retailers trying to run their organization across a continent or across the country with as little money as possible tied up in inventory. Yep. I agree. Well, that's been the whole automotive business over the last 25 years, uh, the mm-hmm. effort to get the logistics systems uh, taking full advantage of the computerization power mm-hmm. and inventory management that has been available. Uh, I mean, there's the production and inventory control technology has been computerized in ERP and MRP, Manufacturing Requirements Planning Systems, for all the years that I've been in business. Uh, And uh, they're just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh, No such thing as percentage tolerances. They're down to 10th percent tolerances on... uh, on inventoried items. Yeah. The, the the warehouse really is the truck on the highway. It really is. It, it, it was uh, on the TV this morning. Uh, they did a shot out of Chicago. They had a little plane, uh, uh, snowstorm there. and They had 20 
Amazon Prime trucks lined up at the Amazon <laughs> warehouse uh, waiting to get loaded and unloaded. And they said, well, what happened? The weather probably says it wasn't the weather problem as much as the, they had a utility problem. The weather took the utility out and the uh -oh. entire warehouse was dark. <laughs> so they had to shut down and they got these 20 tractor trailers lined up waiting to be loaded. And he says, those trailers are usually in and out in an hour. All right. Wow. They're emptied and loaded, and they're gone on the road in an hour, all right? He said, we've been shut down since 5 this morning, and as you can see, we got, looks like about 20 hours worth of backup trucks. <laughs> wow. So yeah. It's really quite amazing uh, what's going on. And he said, but this isn't the only Amazon warehouse, so don't worry about it. The, switch, <laughs> the switches have been turned, and you're liable to get your your product that you ordered, you'll still get it in two days. Uh, just, just from like a different place. Different warehouse. Yeah. And you think about that, the computer in the sky says, oh, we can't fill that order out of Chicago warehouse, so it's going to come out of the St. Louis. Boom, they just throw the switch, and all of a sudden there's a pick order in St. Louis, and they shut down all the pick orders in Chicago. What what have some of these, re like, um, can you give us some examples of some of these retailers? Like, are they um, people with like kitchenwares or general jewelry store? Jewelry, like jewelry store, retail. Uh, yeah. maybe maybe doing a uh, eight hundred thousand a year. It's got four hundred thousand in inventory. And wow. if you do if you do an inventory analysis on that, he should probably be turning his inventory at least uh, Four times a year, you know, if he does it two times a year, he only needs two hundred thousand in inventory, right? So he's got four or five hundred thousand. Uh, ideally, uh, to to get it the kind of financing that you really need, I could hardly take it to a bank that would give him more than one hundred fifty thousand, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and if you say it was. Uh, if he had his inventory down at a hundred, then uh, the a new a new owner could get a full probably could get eighty percent financing on a hundred thousand in inventory, real easy, right? But they they're never they're never going to get even forty percent financing on five hundred thousand, right? Yeah, yeah, Just exactly. Any banker looking at it and say, wait a minute, this won't cash flow. <laughs> So and so and so, what's the response been? Are 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 people willing to embrace the news, or do you leave the situation realizing they're going to need more time, and maybe even they're going to have to talk to some bankers and buyers and realize that you were right? Uh, they they say they understand me, and uh, but. Uh, they're hopeful. They're holding out hope against hope, let's call it. And in a particular situation I'm thinking about, I, I met with them two or three times, and uh, then they don't do what I tell them to do, mm -hmm. all right? They don't show that they're going to take the actions that are going to be necessary. So after that, I think meeting number four, uh, I, I said, I've given you all the free advice I can afford to give you, all right? And yeah. if you want me to take this project on, I'll be happy to take it on, but it's going to require a retainer, right? 
and then I'll do it. Otherwise, let's quit talking because we're just going to end up enemies, all right? And and I don't want to do that, all right? <laughs> and so the the unfortunate thing is that if they never do ever take action, uh, something will occur that will prevent the owner from carrying on. Health, divorce, who knows, right? Right. And this business, unfortunately, even though it probably could be of a good business, uh, unfortunately, will end up closing, and some, you know, someone will liquidate the inventory, right, to pay off debts or just to, as a as a function of closing the business. And I could see from a jeweler's point of view, he's looking at this inventory, and it's all precious stones and precious metals, and and in his mind, the value doesn't vary or differ or change because you're talking about gold and silver and diamonds. But the, the reality is from, I know someone who's in that industry, it, it's also kind of like ladies' dresses because there's certain fashions, right, of, yeah. of what, what is considered desirable and, and you know, new uh, settings and things for the stones and some things come, are, become popular and other things fall out of, out of favor. And you can, you know, and the last thing they would want to do is have to liquidate inventory for the value of the metal. It's correct. And, and I think it's important going back to the illustration you made before for these kinds of businesses to be very tough love with them and, and get them to break their business into, hey, you've got all these excess fixed assets. I know you don't mm -hmm. think they're excess. All right. Because every retailer I've ever known, so you can't sell from an empty wagon. You know, and I says, but you can't sell from a wagon <laughs> that's covered up with stuff. You can't even find what people want to buy. <laughs> yeah. And but the the idea of hey, let's break out if the, if the business will support a two hundred thousand dollar inventory, show me the two hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, wholesale cost stuff that's selling. Yeah. And let's get the rest of it out of the building. All right, and do the, what you're talking about. Let's we'll create a secondary strategy on that. Right, mm. but if you want to sell a business that operates with the proper inventory, let's design that going forward and pair off everything else that doesn't need to be here. All right. Well, it's it, it, they're selling the same thing. Like what? What? Ultimately, it's. It's all well. Ultimately, it's 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 laziness because here's here's the thing: is if I sell off two hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory, the ne in the next county over, by doing a pop up location, and you know advertising it like crazy and saying I'm going to give away great deals, and I liquidate that inventory, man, maybe I've reduced the value of my inventory by two hundred grand. Well, I got the money from the people in the next county. Correct. Which means that I don't need to get it from the buyer, <laughs> so it's and uh, when I and and I've I've had these conversations with people. I'm like, you just have to get it from them instead of you know get it from customers instead of getting it from the from the buyer. There was this uh, stovepipe business, uh, uh, fire like hearth business where they would install uh, fireplaces and wood burning stoves, and every one of their jobs, you know, they would sell a, a wood stove to somebody. And their technician would go out to the home, and they would make measurements and things, and see what parts they needed as far as the uh, as far as the stove pipes and the chimney pipes and everything they had to put onto the house to to install the stove. Well, they had two day delivery available 
from a warehouse. But instead of ordering the parts they needed for each job, they just ordered a pallet of everything. They had a pallet of 90 degree elbows and a pallet of 60 degree bends and, and all this stuff because they just found it easier to go into their own warehouse and just have the technicians pick up what they needed. And as a result, they had like $100,000 worth of pipes and parts just piled in there. Completely unnecessary. If they had just planned the job and ordered the parts, it could have had everything day after next. And when I, when, I, when I pointed out to them that all they had to do was stop ordering and just liquidate the inventory through their own use and start going to two-day ordering, how it would improve the performance of their business from a return on equity point of view. They could take all that money out of the company. And this is, this is one of the lessons I think that small business owners can learn from large enterprises is it's not your profit. It's how much money have you been able to make from the money you have tied up in it? Because business is risky. You, you don't want to tie up half a million dollars and earn 10% on it when you can, you know, tie up $200,000 and earn 40%. That's right. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, uh, the idea of, of uh, going out of market, I think, is a very interesting one for, for the retail customer because uh, when you suggest, gee, we ought to have a liquidation sale or some other form, they immediately think of the damage they're going to make in their marketplace. Yeah. And your point of a pop-up or another location is with a little extra effort, take that excess inventory and get it out of your county. Get it. Yeah. Just get it away from your store somewhere. And an illustration that I made or suggested I made to one of my, my retail people is I said, look, let's get two for one coupons and offer them to people that have never been to your store or will never come to your store. <laughs> Why would I do that? Because <laughs> I want to get rid of the, the goods. <laughs> well, well that, would, yeah. that would be such a good deal. Then I'd say, no kidding. <laughs> 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 and, and, and I call that anchoring. I, they're so anchored into their model of, gee, I ought to get a markup on everything. I ought to do this, that you really do have to get a different mindset. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to bounce back and forth with you, your idea of it's really separating them out to let's say what a buyer would buy if they bought your business and get them to understand that's the only thing someone's going to buy. Okay. Now, everything else that you want to sell here, let's find another way to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what you pointed out here. Well, Paul, I'm I'm really happy that you decided to join me again this year for one of these calls because I, last year's call was a great call and I'm glad that we were able to hear the follow-up story. Um because you know so often when businesses are bought and sold, the the details are just not available publicly, right? Now, buyers and sellers, it's all confidential for them. And and I mean, you haven't shared any any specific details, but to tell the story of how it went back and forth and what the deal looked like, I think is really informative, especially when so many people go on the internet looking for information about this stuff and what they what they read 
is just, it's not the reality of small business. It's a, a lot of it's from, you know, larger businesses in the mid market space and stuff like that. Um, or it's, you know, I, I see a lot of self-serving material from different people who are trying to, who all have their own agendas about what they're trying to do. Um, but to actually learn about the back and forth between a buyer and seller and, and to get the insight from the seller about why they chose the buyer they did. Right. Because the, the thing that that is so important is the relationship. Ultimately, people do business with people and the buyer and the seller have to get into that position where they trust each other and they're willing to believe what the other says. And then they have to build a deal that also protects the both of them. Yep. Well, it's a, it, 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 uh, it takes a, a dance, if you may. And, uh, I'm continually amazed at why buyers, excuse me, why sellers delay in engaging uh, a broker consultant to help them prepare what is going to take them three to six months of truth Mm. finding and truth telling. Well, it's not fun, Paul. It's not fun. Well, it's it's very painful for them. No, no doubt about it. But eventually they're going to do it. Or like you said, they're going to call with a a death, a divorce, uh, uh, a disaster of some kind. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and then they're going to have to do it anyway. And that's the worst of conditions. And that's what we try to avoid them. I just don't know what magic words to use. Uh, to do them other than them listening to war stories, I guess. Hmm. Paul, if, if there's anyone in, uh, in the Michigan area that, that would like to reach out to you, how could people find you online? Uh, they can find me at uh, uh, Paul Hindelang. On LinkedIn probably is the best way, right? And Hindelang is H-I-N-D-E-L-A-N-G. Hindel, right. Hindelang. Yep. Right. I also have a website, results-systems.com. That's so results-systems.com. That's, that's pretty easy to remember. And, and uh, thank you, Paul, for joining me again this year. And um, I hope that you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you very much, David. Talk to you.